0: Please listen to this very interesting story. A woman brought a very limp parrot into a veterinary hospital. As she lay her pet on the table, the vet pulled out his stethoscope and listened to the bird's chest. After a moment or two, the vet shook his head sadly and said, I'm so sorry, ma'am, but Polly has passed away. The distressed owner wailed, "Are Are you sure? I mean... You haven't done any testing on him or anything. He might just be in a coma or something. The vet rolled his eyes, shrugged, turned, and left the room, returning a few moments later with a beautiful black Labrador retriever. As the bird's owner looked on in amazement, the dog stood on his hind legs, put his front paws on the exam table, and sniffed the dead parrot from top to bottom. He then looked at the vet with sad eyes and shook his head. The vet led the dog out but returned a few moments later with a cat. The cat jumped up and also sniffed at the bird. The cat sat back, shook its head, meowed and walked out of the room. The vet looked at the woman and said, I'm sorry, but like I said, your parrot is most definitely dead. He then turned to his computer, hit a few keys and produced a bill which he handed to the woman. The parrot's owner, still in shock, took the bill, $150, she shouted, $150 just to tell me my bird is dead? The vet said, well, if you'd taken my word for it, the bill would have only been $20. But with a lab report and a CAT scan, what did you expect? (laughs) Today, we're continuing our study of Philippians. And once again, the theme is how in the world can we live with joy and peace in a world that is so uncertain? A world where your pet parrot dies and you get these unexpected medical bills because life is like that. And as we come to this next section of Philippians, there's a really important question that we need to ask ourselves. And the question is this Where is your confidence? In a world filled with uncertainty and trouble, who or what? are you depending on who do you trust with your life? Now, if we were to ask that question, if we did a a man and woman on the street interview, you get all kinds of answers, I suppose, because some people might say, well, you know, really, I have a lot of self-confidence because whatever happens, I think I'm smart enough and strong enough, educated enough, resourceful enough to handle whatever life throws at me. Other people might say, well, you know, truth be told, I'm I'm somebody who has a lot of confidence in uh, financial resources, because, um, you know, money can solve just about any problem. As one person said, if a problem can be solved with money, it's not really a problem, it's merely an expense. Or some people might say this, well, you know, my my self-confidence or my confidence is not really in myself, it's in other people. Because if I get into trouble, I can always go to my family or I can always go to my friends, and I'm sure they'll bail me out. Other people might say, well, Let's see, my source of confidence. I believe that science and technology is my source of confidence, that if there's enough money and enough time and enough research that we can solve any problem. There may be others who would think about that question and say, well, you know, honestly, I don't know. I'm not sure who I trust or what I trust. I kind of just go through life one day to the next taking whatever happens. So I don't really have a source of confidence or or hope. Today, as we continue our study in the book of Philippians, that is a critical question. Where is your confidence? I was thinking as I watched the news coverage of the hurricane that hit Texas, um, just of all the devastation that occurred, 25,000 homes completely destroyed, 100,000 others with heavy damage. There were 100 or excuse me, a 1,000 people rescued last night. Um, The interstate's under three feet of water. It's a disaster zone. And at times like that, we really discover where our confidence lies. Isn't that true? We find out who and what we're depending on to get through this world. Now, I wanted to give you a synopsis of the verses we'll look at this morning, and they're right there on your Bible study outline this morning. It says this, to live... With joy and peace and a world filled with trouble, your confidence must be in Christ alone. Now, this is a very bold statement. And as we explore these verses, Paul, the one who wrote this letter that we call Philippians, is going to get very personal about the change that's taken place in his life when it comes to the source of his confidence. And this is what he says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. And then there's this statement that kind of comes out of nowhere. He says watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And you read this and go whoa, what is going on? Well, let me explain what Paul is addressing. He's concerned about these false teachers, these Jewish false teachers that are leading so many people astray and he calls them dogs. Now, here in our American culture, when you think of the word dog, it often has a very positive connotation. Hey, do you like my cute little dog? But in Paul's day, when you said the word dog, people thought about these wild, vicious animals that that roamed the streets in packs and attacked anybody who passed by. And so this is a really serious accusation when Paul says, "These, these false teachers are dogs. And here's what's interesting. The Jewish people often referred to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as dogs. And so Paul is saying, look, you Jewish teachers, you are so smug and so self-righteous and so full of pride, you call other people dogs, but you're the dogs because you pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how are they perverting the gospel? Well, they were telling people that if you want to be right with God, if you want God to accept you into his family, there are certain Jewish rituals that you have to follow, things like circumcision. Now, there's a really important principle here for us today, and the principle is this. We need to beware of false teachers. In fact, one of my responsibilities as your pastor is to warn you about false teachers, people who teach another gospel, a different gospel from the one that Jesus and the apostles taught. And what what Paul is going to do, he's going to point out just how dangerous this is, not only for those who teach a false gospel, but for those who listen and follow a false gospel. And he does this in a different letter, and I want to point this out just quickly. It's in Galatians chapter 1, and Paul says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live and the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then Paul makes... What I think is a very dramatic statement, he says, but but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now that's a really serious statement that Paul makes. And church, one of the reasons that week after week I talk to you about the bad news and the good news of the gospel is that I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be led astray by other gospels. That, as Paul says, are really no gospel at all. And let me just give you two quick examples. One is the teaching of universal salvation by the Unitarians. They say, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe. Um, It doesn't matter what you believe about God or what you believe about Jesus or really what you do, because God accepts everybody. There are many paths that lead to heaven. Just pick the one you want. Now, is that what the Bible says? No, not by a long shot. Is that what Jesus taught? No, because in John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then there's another false gospel. You can just turn on television. It's on a lot of cable stations. It's sometimes called the prosperity gospel. And the teaching that you hear goes something like this. If you're a true follower of Christ... God wants you to be completely healthy and extremely wealthy. And if you're not, it's because you don't have enough faith and you're not doing enough things to contribute to this ministry and to help God in the world. And this prosperity gospel is affecting the lives of so many people. Now, is that the gospel that Jesus taught? No. Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. He went on to say, but take courage, I've overcome the world. But Jesus also told his disciples, listen, if they persecuted me, guess what? They are going to persecute you. Church, listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not exempt us from suffering in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ prepares us and equips us for suffering in this world by pointing us to Jesus, the one true source of hope, deliverance, freedom. And I, I've got to tell you, this is um, an issue that has really come to the forefront for me. As you know, I've had the opportunity to travel to other countries and to interact with other pastors and their wives and church leaders. The prosperity gospel that is here in the U.S. is being exported to other Christians around the world. And I've had conversations with other believers who say, you know what, man, my wife is sick and we don't have much money, so I guess we're not very good Christians. I guess we're not doing enough or or following Jesus enough. And I say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, that is not the true Gospel. The true gospel says that, that there can be trouble in your life because this is a broken, fallen world and that trouble is supposed to help you understand that there's a God who loves you and a God who's willing to rescue you. And, and church, here's the thing. If, if this gospel is preached in America, if, if people think that following Jesus means that I'm going to be healthy and I'm always going to be wealthy and I'm going to be comfortable and everything is going to be... Just great, I'm going to live on easy street. If people buy into that teaching, then who in the world is going to take a risk, a financial risk, a health risk, any kind of risk, to take the gospel to places where it is difficult and dangerous? Do you see the implications here? And so it is so important that we understand that the gospel according to Jesus is true and the gospel according to these other teachers, even the ones in Paul's day, is false because it's a different gospel. So I want you to know as your pastor, the the prosperity gospel is a lie. And as Steve Brown, one of my favorite Bible teachers, would say, it comes from the pit and it smells like smoke. And it does. So do not be led astray. And here's the deal. You know, I I thought, why is Paul so upset? Because, man, he is really ticked off. He's calling these people dogs and evildoers and it's like, whoa, he's really mad. And here's why. Because he loves these Philippian believers so much that he does not want them to be led astray. Well, church, I love you. I really do. And I do not want you to be led astray. And then Paul says this. This is in verse 3. He says this. For it is we who are the circumcision. What's that about? Well, he's referring to true believers. So we're the true believers. We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Jesus Christ, who put no confidence in the flesh, which really refers to human effort, who put no confidence in human effort. And then Paul says this, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh or in human effort, I have more. And now Paul's going to give us a list of things that he could put his confidence in. He says this, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. is sort of his resume before he met Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this. He says, but, but, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. And then Paul makes a really dramatic statement. He says, I consider them garbage. Garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And Paul says this, one of the most powerful parts of his letter, he says, I want to know Christ And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attending to the resurrection from the dead. Now, in these verses, we see the example of Paul's life. And from that example are two ways that we can live, two places that we can put our confidence. And the first is this. It's on your outline. It's option number one. You can place your confidence in people or things other than Christ. And Paul talks about some things that he could place his confidence in. And the first is this, religious rituals. He says, hey, you know what? I was circumcised on the eighth day as the Jewish law requires. In fact, it goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Remember back in the Old Testament, God says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to provide for you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And there needs to be a really important sign for this agreement between the two of us. And I think that Abraham probably wanted to renegotiate that myself. Uh, God, you think we could maybe have a secret handshake or something? I mean, circumcision, that's pretty serious. No, God? But God says, no, I want it to be something that you will always remember. And it was, it's very interesting. It was a symbol that involved blood pointing forward to another one who would shed his blood so that our relationship with God could be restored. But here was the problem. The Jewish leaders were saying, listen, unless you have this sign of the covenant, unless you get circumcised, you're never going to be okay with God. God will not accept you into his family. And Paul said, that's just not true. Now, there are people today who believe that you can be made right with God through a religious ritual. It's called baptism. I've talked to a number of people in the Catholic church who say, you know what, as long as you're baptized, you're good to go. You're fine. Doesn't matter how you live. As long as you, man, if you got baptized, then you're going to be okay with God. But here's the deal. Baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. When you come to faith in Christ, that's what ushers you into a new relationship with God and makes you a part of God's family. Baptism is just a sign that you've come to faith in Christ, that you're a follower of Christ, that you're now included in his forever family. And then Paul points to something else that he could put his confidence in, social status. And he says this, hey, um, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which was a really big deal in Israel because being from the tribe of Benjamin meant that you were the aristocracy. It was like you were royalty. It'd be like somebody saying, hey, you know what? My descendants came over on the Mayflower. What do you think about that? And not only that, what was, what was Paul's name before he was called Paul? Do you recall? Saul. And he was probably named for King Saul in the Old Testament, who was from what tribe? The tribe of Benjamin. And then there is this, source of confidence that Paul could have claimed his education. If you want to impress somebody, you could share where you went to school. You could say, I graduated from Harvard. I went to Yale. I went to MIT. I went to Caltech. I went to FSU. That might not impress too many people. But you get the idea. Now, here's, here's Paul. He studied under the most respected teacher in all of Israel. His name was Gamaliel. Everybody knew this guy, and it was amazing to be one of his students, and I read this one time in a commentary that by the age of 21, the Apostle Paul had the equivalent of two PhDs. He was incredibly intelligent, incredibly well-educated, and he was a guy who worked really, really hard. Nobody outworked Paul, and that was another source of confidence that he could claim his performance, because he says, hey, I am a Pharisee. Now... When you read the Bible, Pharisees often get a bad rap, if you will. Jesus actually condemns the Pharisees at times. But you know, when you think about it, they were trying really hard to please God. I mean, they went astray. They, they ran off the rails, but at the heart of being a Pharisee was a commitment to know God's law and to do God's law. In fact, what they did, this is really interesting. How many commandments did God give to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai? Do you know? Yeah, ten. Ten commandments. The Pharisees had taken those original ten commandments and expanded them to over 600 laws. You know, when when the fourth commandment says, remember this Sabbath day to keep it holy, don't do any work. Well, the Pharisees decided, well, we've got to define what that means. And so there was a law about how heavy your belt could be if you walked around on the Sabbath so you wouldn't break the law by doing work. I mean, that's how crazy it got. And Paul says, you know what? That's who I used to be. I was so so wrapped up in trying to earn God's favor by, by doing everything right. And you know, I could trust my, my social status, my education, these religious rituals, but I only have confidence in one thing, in one person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And church, there really is only two ways that we can go through this world. Our confidence can be in other things, other people, or our confidence can be in Christ alone. So what does that really mean? Well, let me point out a couple of things. I think this is really helpful. First of all, having confidence in Christ means that you trust him alone for salvation. You trust him alone for salvation. And remember a few weeks ago, we talked about this, this word salvation, and I said, you know, when you encounter that in the Bible, you can substitute the phrase complete rescue because that's what salvation is. God has rescued us. It starts when you trust Jesus, but it, it happens throughout your life. And being rescued means that, that God has settled your past that God has assured your future. It means that he's going to give you strength for what you're going through today. That's what it means to be saved. And again, having confidence in Christ means that you trust him alone for salvation. I think it's interesting when we have a membership class, we we talk about the vows that people take as they stand up front on a Sunday morning. And we have certain questions that we ask, and the first two questions are really a summary of the bad news and the good news. For example, the first question that we ask people as they join our church family is this. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? And that really is what the bad news is all about. Do you admit that you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law, that because of your disobedience you're separated from God? And it says here, justly deserving his displeasure, that what God owes us, is not to be saved. What God owes us as a just God is to be condemned. And here's the thing, it says we are without hope because we can't save ourselves from that just punishment of God. The Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So our hope is in God's sovereign mercy and the second question talks about that. It says, do you believe in Jesus Christ as the son of God and savior of sinners And notice this, do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation? Now, think about this this illustration. See the stool that I'm sitting on right now? Am I depending on the stool completely to hold me up right now? Am I? No. So I'm sort of depending on myself, right? And I'm depending on the stool at the same time. And this is the view that many people have of salvation, of being right with God. You know, God, you know, I, I believe that Jesus is who you said he is. I believe he died on the cross, and you said that he paid for my sins, and I get that, and I believe that. But you know what, God, I just want to be sure that I'm okay with you. So I'm going to try really hard to be a good person. I, I really am, God. And, and if I can just do a good, a good enough job of that, I know that you'll accept me. Listen, when somebody has that perspective, they don't understand the true gospel. Because the true gospel says that we can rest in what Jesus has done for us and that it is enough. I mean, think about this. I was sharing this in first service. I was, I was praying and I was reminding myself why I should expect God to hear me and answer me. Do you ever think about that when you pray? I mean, why should God listen to you? Why should God listen to any of us? Why should he answer our prayers? Hey, God, hey, I went to church Six weeks straight. Did you see that? Didn't miss a Sunday. You know, God, um, I've been really good this week. I haven't watched any bad stuff on my computer. Um, God, when Pastor Dudley stood up in front of church and asked for people to help with children's ministry, I volunteered and I don't even like kids. And, and you know, God, um, we sold that property last year. And I heard that sermon on tithing. So I gave you 10% from the sale of that property. I hope that got your attention. You see, the reason that we can expect God to hear us, the reason we can expect God to answer us is not because of anything we do. It's because of what Jesus has done. I mean, think about this. This is something that I just, I think is so important. And and I want to, to live this way myself, but... When you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to fear. Do you realize that? You have nothing to prove to God because Jesus did everything necessary for you to be accepted into God's family. You have nothing to hide because God knows everything about you and he's forgiven you. You have nothing to fear in this crazy world because you are eternally loved and eternally secure. What would it be like, really church, what would it be like to go through the days of your life saying, I have nothing to prove, I have nothing to hide, I have nothing to fear? That'd be a life of freedom, wouldn't it? And what did Jesus say? What did he say his mission was? I came to heal the brokenhearted and set the prisoners free. That's the life that Jesus wants us to live. I was thinking about, about this explanation of what Christ has done for us. It's a hypothetical story. Just imagine this. Imagine that you have a friend, very wealthy friend. His name is Bob Smith. And Bob calls you up on a Friday, and he says, listen, I know you've been working really hard, so I want to do this. I want to give you and your family um, just a trip to this really fancy resort, and I'm going to pick up the tab, all expenses paid. And you go, Bob, man, that is great. Wow, I'm really thankful. So you go to this resort, and you go to check-in, and the person behind the counter says, can I have your name? And you give them your name, and you say, I'm a guest of Bob Smith. And the person looks and goes, oh yeah, okay, I see that you're a guest of Bob and he has several other guests here at the hotel as well. And then the person does this, they slide this piece of paper in front of you and you see that it's the bill for your stay. And you look at the number and you think, oh no, I mean, if I took all the credit cards out of my wallet and added up all the limits, it wouldn't even be near enough to pay for this, this weekend. And then your eyes fall on a little phrase at the bottom of the page. Paid in full. And you start to smile. Bob Smith has paid it all for you. Christian, Jesus Christ has paid it all for you. And you get it all. You get God's love. You get his forgiveness. You get his favor in your life because you're his son. You're his daughter. That's who we are, church. That's where our confidence should lie. And that brings us to this next statement on your outline, to have confidence in Christ You need to get to know him better and better. You see, the Apostle Paul says, listen, the thing that I want more than anything else is to know Jesus. And he talks about two things. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want the power of God in my life that comes by by knowing Jesus. And we talked about this last week. I actually walked you through a way to study the Bible because here's the deal. I want you to get to know Jesus better and better. What did Jesus say? All of Scripture points to who? Who? This whole book points to Jesus. So when you read these stories, you're learning about Jesus. And the better you know Jesus, the more you will trust Jesus with your life. Now think about this. If you're, if you're new to our church and you decided that you wanted to get to know me, how would you do that? How would you go about that? I was thinking, you know, somebody might go on the website and kind of look at my bio and you'd learn some things about me. Or maybe you'd listen to a sermon or read something that I wrote and you'd know about me. But if you really want to know me, what would you need to do? Yeah, you've got to talk to me. You've got to listen. We've got to spend time together. It works that way with Jesus. It's great to read the stories. Hey, I read the bio of Jesus. Man, this is amazing. I would like to get to know him. So what do you need to do? Spend time with him and talk to him. And allow him to talk to you through his word and through his spirit. Because that's what equips you to handle the things that life throws at you. That's what gives you access to the power of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this, where do you need God's power in your life right now? Think about that. You know, I know that some of you are going through some really tough things. I've, I've had some, some difficult conversations, some heartbreaking conversations with people this week. I know that there's a lot of stuff going on in many people's lives. Or maybe it's in somebody's life that you love. And church, I'm convinced of this. We're not as strong as we think we are. Sometimes we just try to to get through it and keep going, and God says, whoa, 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 time out. You're not as strong as you think you are. And often God does this. He allows things to come into our lives so that we will admit that our lives are broken, that our dreams are broken, that our hearts are broken. Sometimes God allows us to hit the bottom so we'll finally look up and say, God, please help me. There was was one situation. I'm dealing with several people and families that are working through addiction issues. And and some of you know the the 12-step program of AA. And the first, first step is simply this. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. And I thought, you know, that is so consistent with Scripture because if you want to cry out to God and ask for His power, you have to first admit your own weakness. God, I can't handle this. And the second step of AA says this, We came to believe, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And isn't that what the Gospel says? This this greater power is God, and you access His power through faith in Christ. And then think about the third step in AA. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Well, that's really what you do when you become a Christian. You make a decision to turn your will and your life over to Jesus Christ as you understand Him. And then as you grow in that relationship, you get to know him better and better, and then you trust him more and more. Do you see how that works? That's so incredibly important. I think about what Jesus said to his disciples, and this is before he goes to the cross. He says, listen, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You stay connected to me, you're going to bear much fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But he said this, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, not a zip. And what does Paul say later in Philippians? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We need to know the power of Jesus in order to have confidence in him. And here's the last thing that I want you to see. This is on your outline. It says this, you get to know Christ better as you experience his power. And then the next thing, you get to know Christ better as you experience suffering. There was a guy who was talking to his friend who was gonna get married and he said, hey, do you know the three rings of marriage? And his friend said, what? The three rings of marriage? He goes, oh yeah, there's the engagement ring, the uh, wedding ring, and the suffering. We all know this. Nobody gets through life without some degree of suffering. Isn't that true? This is a broken, fallen place. And church, I know that right here in this room, there's all kinds of suffering that, that we've been through. And there's suffering I know about the suffering that only God knows about. But some of you have been through the pain of divorce. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost parents and friends. Some of you parents have lost children. Some of you that are moms and dads right now, your heart is breaking because of the choices your kids are making. Some of you have lost businesses. Some of you have lost your health. Some of you have just faced enormous adversity. And when that happens, there's an amazing relationship is possible when you meet somebody who's been through what you've been through isn't that true you feel like you can talk to them you feel like hey they really get this because they've been there they know how much this hurts well that's what paul is saying i want to know christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering because paul understands that that when he is in prison when he is beaten when he is rejected when people are trying to kill him that jesus gets that because those same things happen to jesus And church, that's what's important for us. When you're going through a really difficult situation in your life, realize this, Jesus understands. But here's the danger, and this is what I've seen play out. Not just this this week, but I've seen this play out for years. When people have pain pour into their lives, it can drive them in two different directions. For some people, it drives them away from God. And they say, well, God, why is this happening to me? God, this isn't fair. God, why don't you do something? And so they just start to drift away from God. They they drop out of church. They quit reading their Bible. They quit praying. They get isolated and things just spiral downward. But it doesn't have to be that way, church, because that pain that pours into your life can drive you to Jesus. And that's my prayer for each one of us because I know that right now some of you are going through some really tough things. And if you're not, guess what? They're around the corner. Because in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. But Jesus wants us to do this. And this is my prayer for each one of us, including myself, that when trouble pours in, that we will run to Jesus and we will hear him say this to us I know how much this hurts. I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. And I really, really love you. So put your confidence in me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the encouragement that comes from your word. And I want to thank you myself, Lord, for how much your truth has encouraged me today. I thank you for the privilege of sharing this this good news with others. Lord, I know that there are people in our church family that are really hurting right now, and I pray, Lord, that they would come to you, that they would pray and say, God, I don't feel like praying right now, but please give me the desire to do that. Give me the ability to to pour out my heart to you. God, give me the, the strength to take one more step. And Father, I know that when we do that, that you'll hear us and you'll run to rescue us because you're the God who is faithful. And Father, this morning for the person who's never trusted Jesus, maybe today is the first time they've realized, you know what, I don't even know where my confidence really is, but I want it to be in Christ. God, I pray that they would just, right now, in their own words, say something like this. God, I need you. God, I I know I'm a person who's failed in a lot of ways. I'm a sinner, and I need a savior, and I know today his name is Jesus. And God, I believe the story. It really happened that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and came back to life. And I don't understand all this stuff about Christianity, but God, I guess I don't need to. I can just say I'm going to turn my will and my life over to Jesus. And that's what I want to do. I want to follow him. And God, for those of us who have made that decision, I pray that as we walk through this crazy world, that Lord Jesus Christ would be our our confidence, our strength, our foundation, the one upon which we build our lives and our future. And God, I want to pray this too. As we sing this last song, I pray that that we would do this, that we wouldn't just kind of listen to the song. God, I pray that we would engage our heads and our hearts and sing this as a statement of faith that our confidence is in Christ alone.